brethren, sisterin. We'll get started. I think we're about one minute till, but we'll go ahead and get started. I think I got everything set up here. Got a little clock besides me. That clock is not right. But we'll get started. If you would, let's go ahead and and bow and ask the Lord's help. Father, thank you for your grace in salvation. Like our brother Spurgeon said, Lord, it is all of grace. And so, Lord, help us right now in these few minutes to be wowed again by your grace. And helped as we think about some of the questions it raises in our hearts, Lord, when we, when we contemplate what it means that you save sinners. So, Lord, exalt Jesus. He is the Savior. You are the sovereign Savior. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. And we'll look there in a minute, beginning in verse 29. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 7. After that, I've got my Bible open to Romans 8. Luke chapter 7, verse 29. Text says, When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Flip over to that Acts 7 text, verse 51. <clears throat> verse 51 is kind of the climax. It's the, it's the conclusion to Stephen's sermon when he was standing before the high priest, the scribes, and the council. In verse 51, he said, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. He says they're resisting the Holy Spirit. And not only these particular Jews 
are resisting the Holy Spirit, but also their fathers before them resisted the Holy Spirit. They resisted to the point of killing both the prophets who told them of the coming of Christ, and then they resisted these, these Jews to the point of murdering the Son of God when he came. And this morning's grow title is Resistible Grace? Question mark. And it's obviously the question, is, is grace resistible? And this session, it arose because of the questions that we received around the topic of God's saving grace in our Honest Question series, and whether or not it can be resisted. Is God's grace resistible? And if it is, what does that mean? If it's not, what does that mean? If it's not, how do we handle bib biblical texts that speak of those who resist God's spirit, reject his purposes for their lives, if God's grace is, in some sense, irresistible, then what does it mean when someone leaves the faith? Are they not, in some way, resisting God's grace? And really, there are a thousand other questions that come to mind whenever we're thinking and trying to, to piece together in our minds how God's grace in salvation fits together with the responsibility of man, to respond to the gospel call, and whether or not that person will remain a Christian. There's lots of questions that come up, and lots of things come to mind when someone throws out the words irresistible and grace. So I want to start with a definition. This is not really the question, or any of the questions, but uh, we need to start with a definition. What do, what do we even mean when we're using the words resistible or irresistible in conjunction with grace? And I want to say, I'm going to give you different words. Uh, the language is fine when we, when we say resistible, irresistible, but there's a little bit of an issue when we use those words because people can get, and people do, get the wrong idea about what we're talking about. When we use those words, there are opponents, people who do not believe in the doctrines of grace, particularly this doctrine, and when they hear those words, they accuse anyone who believes that as being part of all those crazy Calvinists who believe that God forces sinners against their will into heaven, while there are others who, if they were given the chance, would love to go to heaven, but are left out because they're not part of God's elect. God didn't irresistibly draw them, and so you have those who desire to go to heaven left out and those who don't want to go to heaven drug in against their will. Of course, this is a false and unbiblical view of God's grace and salvation, and so I submit to you, rather than speaking in terms of irresistible grace throughout this grow time, we're going to use the better descriptor. I think it's better of God's effectual calling, okay? God's effectual calling, that's what we're talking about. In both terms, they're essentially talking about the same thing, same effect, but the latter, it places the emphasis not so much upon man's ability and the power of man to resist, because if you just stop there, you have to ask and answer, is fallen man able to do anything except resist? 
It's a very important question. But in the, the latter, when we're talking about the doctrine of effectual calling, the emphasis is upon whether God is able to graciously and effectively overcome man's resistance. Whether God is able to give man a new will so that the regenerate sinner now comes to Christ, not against his will, but actively choosing Christ out of a regenerate will, a regenerate heart. I want to read to you from our Grace Church Elder Affirmation of Faith. I told Ben, he said he, he hadn't put things on there yet. I don't have any resources and I don't have a slideshow. Yeah, it doesn't even say Resistible Grace up there. But uh, the only two resources that I recommend, number one, just it's, it's just the best all-in-one you can get is Wayne Grudem, his systematic theology. If you only had to get one systematic theology, he's, it's just phenomenal. Um, get that. Uh, but also... Uh, print off, punch holes in it, put it in a book, um, our Grace Church Elder Affirmation of Faith and our Grace Church Member Affirmation of Faith. Just faithful, faithful documents uh, that will help you in thinking through some of these things. But I want to read to you from our Grace Church Elder Affirmation of Faith. This is what your pastors believe, okay? This is what we hold to. This is what we affirm. This is what we hold out to you from the scriptures. This is from section 8.3 on the saving work of the Holy Spirit. It says, We believe that apart from the effectual work of the Spirit, no one would come to faith because all are dead in trespasses and sins, that they are hostile to God and morally unable to submit to God or please Him, because the pleasures of sin appear greater than the pleasures of God. Thus, for God's elect, the Spirit triumphs over all resistance, wakens the dead, removes blindness, and manifests Christ in such a compellingly beautiful way through the gospel that he becomes irresistibly attractive to the regenerate heart. Let me say again that, that I and every one of your pastors wholeheartedly subscribe to that statement as a faithful summary of the teaching of Scripture on this issue. In salvation, God triumphs over all human resistance, and it is an act of God's grace for him to do so. It is an act of God's grace. We believe this because of texts like 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, which speaks of God granting repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. It's something given. It's a gift. Texts like Acts 11 verse 18 which speak of God granting repentance that leads to life. Uh, texts like John 6 44 in which Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day, he said. We believe texts like Acts 16, verse 14, which tell us that, that God opened Lydia's heart to receive the things that were spoken by Paul. Repentance is a gift of God's grace. It's something granted by God in the opening of the heart of a sinner so that they may come to Jesus being drawn by his spirit 
I told you I had my Bible open to, to Romans 8, 28 through 30, which describes God's declaration. It's his, his great goal and commitment in your life of conformity to Christ. And, and as Paul, he's working through each link of this golden chain, part of God's saving work, right in the middle of predestination, justification, glorification. He writes that those of whom all those things are true are also those who are called. He says, in these whom he predestined, he also called. So who did he call? Those who he predestined. It is those, the predestined whom he called, that he also justified and glorified. Your pastors affirm and hold fast to the biblical doctrine of God's effectual calling. Okay, so now, what do we do with the questions that this raises in our own hearts? What do we do with texts that seem to indicate otherwise? It's the whole point of this grow session. Most of us in this room, I think, affirm this doctrine, but you have questions, and we're met with difficulties when we come to texts like the ones that we read at the outset, which speak of those who reject God's purpose for their lives. Texts like Acts 51, which speak of those who resisted the Holy Spirit. So what do we, what do we what do we do with those, and what do we do with the questions that arise? As I thought about how to approach uh, this topic, we, we do have some specific questions. We have a few specific questions uh, that I want to try to answer, but more than anything, the question that came to mind is, is there a grid? Is there a biblical grid, not just did the pastors answer my question? But if I didn't ask my question, but I still have it, is there a grid that I can filter my question through that will help me get an answer or a question you haven't even thought of that's going to come a couple of years from now? Is there a biblical grid uh, that will help me think about God's grace and salvation? And it seems to me like most of the questions that come... Uh, that fall under this heading uh, will fall into one of three major categories. And so if you're taking notes, start taking notes. The first category has to do with God, okay? When we're looking at a text that indicates that God is being resisted or a text that seemingly God is overcoming the will of a sinner or changing the will of a sinner, like in Acts 16, 14, it says God opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul, the question that we need to ask is this. Is what we're seeing in this particular text tied to the revealed, prescriptive, moral will of God, or is it tied to God's hidden, sovereign will of decree? That's number one. Number two, the second category has to do with man. So as we're, as we're looking at a text, we have a question related to, to man's response to God and salvation, either in resisting God's grace or believing on Christ for salvation. The question we need to ask here is, what is the biblical description of the condition of fallen man? 
That is, is man merely spiritually sick? Or does the Bible teach us that man is spiritually dead? That's the second question. The third has to do with the nature of true conversion. When God saves a person, is the nature of God's saving work permanent and transformative or provisional and reversible? So those, those are the, the three categories. So we're, we're going we're gonna to ask some specific questions that we received, but as you're thinking through these things, you need to ask and answer these questions. The, these questions, okay? Because how you answer these questions is going to determine in large measure how you come up with your answers about what God is doing and his will and sovereign grace as he's dealing with mankind. God's will, hidden or revealed, man's condition, sick or dead, true conversion, permanent or provisional. So answer those questions, okay? With that framework, uh, Let's move on now to some specific questions that were submitted. Okay, and do we have another microphone that we can kind of pass? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so the first, first question, it has to do with those biblical texts which speak of those who resist God's will uh, or resist his spirit. Luke 30, or Luke 7, verse 30, Acts 7, 51, they resisted the Holy Spirit. So the question is, do these texts contradict the doctrine of God's effectual calling? And before I just give an answer, uh, I wanted to pass the mic. I want to say, does anyone want to tell us which of those three initial categories, when we're talking about God's will, hidden or revealed, man's condition, sick or fallen, True conversion, permanent or provisional? Which one of those categories would that question fall under? And would you want to try to give us an answer uh, based on those categories? Anybody? And I'll repeat the question while you're preparing your hand on spring load to, to go into the air. Do did, did texts like the ones that we read at the outset, do they contradict? the doctrine of God's effectual calling? Nobody want to give it a go? Rick Talley said no. All right, let me take another swig. I was sick this week. Got a little bit of congestion still going on. I'm going to ask this for at least two or three more questions. So, all right, well, don't make me call on somebody. <clears throat> do, these, do these texts, I'll give you a freebie on this one, do these texts contradict the doctrine of God's effectual calling? The answer is no. No, they don't. Uh, I would most uh, definitively say no. Um, and I think this, this particular question, it touches on a couple of categories, but, but more spe most, most specifically, the, the question related to God's will. 
okay, hidden or revealed. Uh, these texts, they don't contradict the doctrine of God's effectual calling. The Bible speaks of God's will in different ways, okay? Uh, the clearest and the greatest example in Scripture, and really you can go to the cross for, for most answers to tough doctrines, but the clearest uh, example in this of this is in the cross of Christ, uh, God's revealed prescriptive moral will is you shall not murder. Don't kill people, right? God's will was known and it was binding upon those who delivered Christ over to be crucified. And yet, Peter tells those men in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says that the crucifixion happened according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God's hidden sovereign will of decree was accomplished. God was at work to accomplish his purposes even while the Jewish leaders were disobeying God's revealed will. God's purpose or resisting the Holy Spirit, they're dealing with God's prescriptive moral will. They're not talking about God's sovereign hidden will of decree whereby he effectually predestines and calls a sinner to himself. Yes, they resisted God's will, and yet God triumphed. His will of decree came to pass exactly as he decreed it, 100%. Any thoughts, questions about that? Zero. About sovereign grace, zero questions. See, I'm Ronnie pointing at somebody. I don't know what that means, brother. All right, well, let's, let's consider another question that we received. If God's desire is for all men to be saved, but some or many reject his offer, does it diminish God's glory, worth, and power if he doesn't force us to accept him? Hmm. Does anyone want to take a stab at which category might be helpful in answering that question and give us an answer? No help. No help. Love thy neighbor. I'm your neighbor in this case. All right, I think I see how this is going to go this morning. Oh, wait, we got one. Yes. Hello. Um, no one? Okay. Um, so the question was, if God desires all men to be saved and some are not, does it diminish his glory or power in any way? Yeah, I think, I think so. It's a di if he doesn't force us to accept him. So I think it's essentially, yeah, if, if all don't end up there, if God didn't just make it happen, if some aren't saved, does that diminish his glory, power, and worth? I think. Okay, I think that's um, two categories. One, God. Um, God needs nothing added to him to have more glory or power. Um, and two is the state of mankind. Um, 
that apart from him, we are spiritually dead. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I would agree. I, I would affirm with Catherine, um, God and his will hidden, revealed. That's, that seems to be category number one. Um, God's glory is not diminished. She said no, and I agree. Uh, because again, we're talking about God's will of decree versus his will of command. Uh, there, there, it's, it's hard and a little raw when you say it this way. And if you just say all are not saved because God doesn't want all saved, that feels pretty rough and raw. Um, but also when we're, when we're, when we're trying to think in those terms, we're trying to get in the mind of God, and there's a very real sense in which we just, we, we don't have the wisdom to understand God's purposes. And that doesn't trump what he has revealed to us by way of his will of command. And he has told us things like, that he does desire, in some sense, all men to be saved. I think at least in the sense that he said, <clears throat> I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn and live. God is not happy about the rebellion and death of sinners. And yet, yet, at the cross, we see that even in the worst evil in human history, talking about the murder of the Son of God, we're talking about total moral disapproval by God. God was at work to accomplish and bring to pass what he had willed and decreed. R.C. Sproul, he, he, he put it this way. God's sovereign permission of human sin is not his moral approval. And so God, he, he permits that which he morally disapproves in the accomplishment of his hidden sovereign decree. And this would include those who reject his offer of salvation. Make sense? Questions about that? Thoughts? I'm just thinking, you know, it's one that's claimed to be saved, you know, can they lose their salvation? I think my brother just, just was asking if a person is saved, can they lose their salvation? Correct, yeah. Well, uh, so that, that ties very much into uh, this next question, okay? And it's that third category when you think about, well, what does the Bible teach about the nature of true conversion? Is it permanent or is it provisional? It can change, okay? So to answer or part of answering that question, do past members leaving the faith show that you can walk away from Christ and thus resist his purpose of salvation for your life or for their life. 
what, what of those three initial categories, which one of those would that question fall under and would anyone want to try to give us an answer? Brother Byron. As far as a person losing their salvation, I would put that under God. My reasoning being this, um, it, would, it would limit God's ability uh, to truly save a person and keep a person saved. Jesus says that those that the Father has given me, I've not lost one. So that would limit God's uh, omnipotence. So I, I would not put that on the, on, the, uh, on the person because the person is not able to save themselves, therefore they're not able to lose themselves. And therefore we would have no hope because if I hoped in me, I give up. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I would, I would answer this way, no, also. Uh, one, no, well, no, because no. <laughs> uh, no, God's glory is not diminished. No, he is not being resisted in the sense of his hidden ultimate decree because no, man cannot lose his salvation. Uh, I do not believe uh, that someone leaving the faith is evidence that a person can lose their salvation and resist God's purpose for their lives. That being said, it is true that they are resisting and rejecting God in some sense. And again, I think Byron's correct. It, this, this does speak to God's will, but it's, it's his revealed will. They're rejecting the explicit gospel call upon their lives to follow Christ. They are resisting and rejecting God's revealed will. And yet I believe the Bible's teaching on the nature of genuine conversion. So this is category number three, which helps to answer this. What, what does the Bible teach? Not, not is there a verse that says they, they could stay or, and they were truly saved or they weren't truly saved. We can look for Bible verses and pick those things out, but what is an overall biblical picture of the nature of genuine conversion? Is it permanent? Is it, is it permanent and transformative? You're a new creation. When you, when you try to filter the question through, through that grid, um, you're, you're going you're gonna to be helped to get an answer. And I believe the Bible's teaching on the nature of, of genuine conversion is clear. God tells us in 1 John uh, chapter 2, that there were those who had abandoned the faith, but that their leaving was not a manifestation of, oh, I've, I've, I was saved and I'm not, but that it was a manifestation of their lack of genuine faith. Their leaving, they weren't converts. They weren't genuine converts. Uh, they were uh, antichrists, the text would say. Um, they had not experienced a reversal of regeneration. They're leaving. It was a manifestation that they were not truly Christ to begin with. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't believe it's an example of someone ultimately resisting God's purpose for their lives because I believe that those who are truly born again, much as Byron said, much as 1 Peter 1.5 tells us, were kept by the power of God. And so... Uh, 
I have a couple of other questions. We've got about five minutes. I've got one little just short paragraph here. Why does this matter? What does it change? I'll just, I'll close with that. But are there, are there any other thoughts, questions on that point, or just any other question at all related to this, to this topic um, that you would like to ask? Brother Tim, can we get a microphone? See, I could. <laughs> okay. Um, I think when we think about those who have been are left the church or have been asked to even leave the church, like my son, um, we have to consider the fact that God is also doing something in His church, and that's purifying the bride of Christ, preparing her for the the glory to come. Um, and even as we deal with those things, we have to remember that that's God's revealed will that his bride will be perfect. Yeah, amen, brother. No, that, that's, that's helpful. Um, and we, we don't know the mind of God, and we don't know what's going on in the heart of a sinner, we, but we have God's revealed will, and so we obey, and we seek to follow the Lord in what he has revealed. And don't, don't demand our rights, our sovereign rights, uh, when we don't understand his purposes or know what, what God is up to. Any other thoughts? Any other questions? <clears throat> we must all just be a bunch of happy Calvinists. <laughs> all right, well, as, as, we're, as we're wrapping up, why does this doctrine even matter? What does it change either way? One of the things that it matters for, and the, the Lord knows I need, I need faith and growth in this area in, in my own life immensely. Uh, but it matters for evangelism. Uh, it matters for the, for the glory of Christ's name among the nations in places where Brothers and sisters are dying and being shot in the middle of the street for preaching Christ. People falsely say things like this doctrine destroys evangelism. The reality is, is that our only hope of evangelism is that the sovereign God would have mercy and overcome the rebellion of a dead sinner. And that God would open their eyes to see the beauty and glory of Christ. We have to engage in dependent evangelism. Uh, our efforts are weak. And I'm sure you, maybe you've heard Pastor Rick say, uh, human resolve soon dissolves. And it's true. But what else can the lost be drawn to Christ by. They can be drawn to a lot of things with a lot of stuff, but what can draw a dead sinner to Christ? Good media presentation? Church activities? Pretty sanctuary versus a lunchroom? What, what can overcome the dead will? More than that, 
why would you, why on earth would you offer one more prayer for that dead, hard-hearted sinner who has rejected every loving gospel advance that you have made? Why on earth would you even do that? Why would you pray one more prayer and ask again for Christ to save that soul unless we're convinced by Scripture that God has revealed to us in His Word that He can do it? It matters immensely. It matters for my hope and my confidence. I think it's this kind of thing that, that you can read about in church history that has, has kept saints praying for the lost and those prayers that, that haven't been answered in the conversion of that person until long after the saint who had been praying was dead. It matters. Because we believe that we have a God who is able to save sinners. It matters immensely. It changes the posture of our own heart toward God when we realize he had mercy on you. He saved you. He is a good and gracious God. So let's pray and let's thank him for such mercy to effectually call sinners to himself. Lord, Thank you. Thank you for being the God who saves. And so, Lord, help us now as we're about to sing and pray and hear the preaching of your word. Show yourself to be that awesome, mighty God. Amen.